السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيد المرسلين وخاتم النبيين محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد We gather once again for the continuing tafsir of Surah Al-Munafiqun. In the past few sessions, we've covered the first four verses of the 11 verses of Surah Al-Munafiqun. I'll just quickly translate the, these previous verses so that we are familiar again with the content of the su- contents of the surah Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says idha ja'aka al-munafiqun qalu nashhadu innaka la-rasulullah wallahu ya'lamu innaka la-rasuluh wallahu yashhadu inna al-munafiqina la-kadhibun when the hypocrites come to you they say indeed we testify, sorry, we testify that indeed you are most assuredly the messenger of Allah. And Allah knows that indeed you are most assuredly his messenger. And Allah testifies that, the, that indeed the hypocrites are most assuredly liars. They have taken their oaths as a shield. Thus they have prevented from the way of Allah. Indeed, evil is what they do. This is because they believed. Then they disbelieved. Thus, this, i.e. this disbelief, was stamped on their hearts. So they don't understand. When you see them, their bodies please you. And if they speak, you listen to them. They are as, or it is as though they are planks of wood propped up. They perceive every shout to be against them. They are the enemy. Therefore, beware of them. Allah, Allah battle with them. Whither they are being turned. So this is a simple translation of the first four verses of Surah Al-Munafiqun which we've covered. And just to recap on the contents, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins a surah with a general description of the hypocrites, i.e. the majority of them, or the group collectively. And Allah speaks of their false testimony, of their lying 
of their swearing false oaths, in, even in the name of Allah. Of them taking the name of Allah in vain and using their false oaths as a means of obstructing justice, as a means of preventing people from the way of Allah, as a means of just maliciously and surreptitiously and very selfishly getting their way. And all of these behaviours of theirs resulted in them being misguided and deviating from the way of Allah. And these behaviours also caused others from finding guidance and finding the path of Allah. Thus, as a result, sin compounds sin. Disobedience creates momentum for further disobedience. And darkness brings darkness in its wake. So this cumulative effect resulted in their disbelief and in their hypocrisy being stamped on their hearts. Thus, there was now a barrier for whom Qahun. They are unable to understand and what greater proof could there be than that they would sit with the Prophet wasallam, speak to him, listen to him, pray with him, alongside him, travel alongside him, be in his congregation, listen to his sermons, pray behind him. And yet, even the Qur'an on the tongue of Rasulullah in the masjid of the Prophet of Allah would not penetrate their hearts and minds. Then Allah, in the next verse, Allah actually begins to describe a more specific group as opposed to the general group of the hypocrites. The first few verses speaks of all of the hypocrites. Then the description is narrowed to just a few of them, i.e. the leaders. So when Allah says, وَإِذَا رَأَيْتَهُمْ تُعْجِبُكَ أَجْسَامُهُمْ وَإِنْ يَقُولُوا تَسْمَعْ بِقَوْلِهِمْ that when you see them, their bodies impress you and please you, and if they speak, you listen to them attentively. This wasn't about all of them, because not all, not all of the hypocrites were eloquent, not all of the hypocrites were prepossessing and handsome, or captivating in their appearance, or charming, or well-dressed, nor were all of them rich. So from this verse onwards, the topic is narrowed down to a select few of the hypocrites, i.e. their leaders, their most influential, their most powerful, their, most, their wealthiest individuals, and the ones who commanded an influence. There wasn't just one, there, were a, there, were, there was a group of them because of their wealth and their position. And chief amongst them was Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul. And this is where we ended. And uh, that verse spoke about the fact that they, it was all about appearance. And yet, despite their wealth, their beauty, their handsomeness, their charm, their leadership qualities, their eloquence, despite all of this, within they were hollow. And Allah describes them as being useless, worthless, about... Uh, as valuable and as useful as 
planks of wood propped up against the wall, which, are, which fall into disuse and rot over time. But they're always there. This is where we actually ended, although I have uh, commented on these few verses in some detail. So let's now move on to the next verse, which is the fifth verse. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَإِذَا قِيلَ لَهُمْ تَعَالَوْا يَسْتَغْفِرْ لَكُمْ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ لَوَّوْ رُؤُوسَهُمْ وَرَأَيْتَهُمْ يَصُدُّونَ وَهُمْ مُسْتَكْبِرُونَ And when it is said to them, come, Allah's Messenger will seek forgiveness on your behalf. They turn their heads and you see them resisting whilst being arrogant. This verse again refers to a few select hypocrites who were actually approached by their friends, colleagues, or family members. So this wasn't all of them, but a few. There were a number of occasions when, for instance, when verses of the Qur'an were revealed, and Allah does not identify any of the munafiqun in the Qur'an. Rather, Allah mentions their attributes, their characteristics, so that people can identify them. But even then, it's very dangerous. No one can call anyone a munafiq. In fact, even during the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, as I mentioned in the previous sessions, there is an interesting question here. Did the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam know all of the hypocrites? And that question is answered in the Qur'an itself. If we wished, we would show you them. If we wished, we would show you them, i.e. all of them. And then Allah continues to say, you will recognize them. And in another verse... وَمِمَّنْ حَوْلَكُمْ مِنَ الْأَعْرَابِ مُنَافِقُونَ وَمِنْ أَهْلِ الْمَدِينَةِ مَرَدُوا عَلَى النِّفَاقِ لَا تَعْلَمُهُمْ نَحْنُ نَعْلَمُهُمْ And from amongst the Bedouin around you, there are hypocrites. And also of the people of the city, i.e. the Medina, there are hypocrites. So there are hypocrites amongst the Bedouin around Medina, in the tribes. And there are hypocrites of the people of Medina itself. Maradu ala nifaq they are persistent on their hypocrisy. So these aren't just fleeting, casual hypocrites. These are the more persistent, adamant, strident hypocrites. Yet despite that, Allah says, La ta'lamuhum nahnu na'lamuhum. Allah is addressing the Prophet ﷺ. It's a singular address. You do not know them, we know them. So that verse answers the simple question, did the Prophet ﷺ know all of the munafiqun individually based on these verses and ahadith? The ulama 
are, well, not all, but majority of the ulama are of the opinion that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, although he came to know many of them individually, he did not know all of them. And the Qur'an is very clear in that regard. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not identify the munafiqun by name. Allah mentions their characteristics. But this is not so that people can take these descriptions and these attributes and apply them to individuals and then say he or she is a munafiq or munafiqah. The Prophet ﷺ wouldn't do it in his time and no one has the right after him. In fact, Rasulullah ﷺ, from all of the Sahaba عنهم, he only confided in Hudayfat ibn al-Yaman about the names of the munafiqun. Even Sayyidina Umar would ask him, am I in the list? And he would refuse to disclose the secrets of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He adamantly refused to divulge the information reposed in him in confidence by Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So he never shared that with anyone. But even then, it's been reported that the number of names that the Prophet ﷺ gave him were very few. In one narration, only 14. So very few names were given to him as well. So it's very dangerous to take these attributes and characteristics and apply them to people. The lesson of the Qur'an is that the, and the hadith is, that these are the attributes and characteristics of the hypocrite. You should avoid them. So going back to the verse, in this verse Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks of a select few munafiqun who on a number of occasions they were approached by their family members, friends and colleagues and advised to repent and even to go to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and request him to repent, sorry, request him to seek forgiveness on their behalf. So, for instance, there were sincere believers. And they were probably aware of some of their family members who were waverers, who, were, who had their feet in both camps, who weren't entirely committed or loyal. And when some of these, because of things they would say and their behavior and their attitude, family members would know that there is something not right about these individuals. Because very obvious, here you had Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Everyone could see people's devotion and love and loyalty to him. And then you had some of these individuals who were waverers. So they would hesitate in openly telling them that you are a munafiq. But it was obvious that they had their feet in both camps. So they would be friendly and affectionate and considerate towards the enemies of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So some of the family members and colleagues and acquaintances would approach them and tell them that, look, verses of the Qur'an are exposing your behavior. So you should change your ways, 
go to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, seek his forgiveness, commit yourself to him, and request him to seek Allah's forgiveness on your behalf and do istighfar on your behalf. And these were some. On some occasions, it was very blunt and blatant. For instance, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul. Again, the verses are very specific now. They've narrowed down from the collective group of the Munafiqun. Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, he on more than one occasion was told that go to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, seek his forgiveness and request him to seek Allah's forgiveness on your behalf. But Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul would refuse to do so. And his mannerism was very crude. Even though he wasn't an unrefined person, by nature, or I wouldn't say by nature, because he was a, he was a polished individual. So whatever his heart and mind contained, his mannerism, his demeanour, his approach, his speech, was all very professional and very contrived. So, but yet, when it came to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, subhanallah, his bitterness and his hatred and his arrogance would be betrayed and revealed in his words and his actions. So, one example is, as I mentioned before, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, in when the Prophet وسلم, arrived, he didn't embrace Islam immediately. He did so after the Battle of Badr because he felt that now the position of Rasulullah has been consolidated and he's now become all powerful. So it's now worthwhile joining his group and not opposing him openly. Then, what Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul would do is that in al-Madinah in Masjid al-Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. In fact, before I actually explain this, allow me to go back and say a bit more about Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul himself as an individual. So, as I've mentioned before, he was one of the Khazraj. And Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, he was, he was wise, he had great political acumen, he was astute, he was very cunning and sharp, eloquent. He was a lead, and he was recognized as such, and very influential, very diplomatic. But as I said, this was very contrived. So the people of Medina, the two most powerful and famous tribes of Os and Khazraj, they had agreed to make him the preeminent chieftain of all of the chieftains of Medina. So he was going to be a kind of king, but the Arabs didn't really believe in kings and monarchy and emperors 
in monarchs and emperors, but rather he was going to be the first amongst equals, uh, i.e. of the chieftains. Now, when the Prophet ﷺ arrived, people pledged their allegiance to him. Most of the Osam Khazraj eventually embraced Islam. And Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul felt robbed of his kingship, of his monarchy, of his crown. And he thus uh, opposed the Prophet ﷺ for various reasons, but also for very personal reasons. He was very bitter and resentful towards him. Now, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul initially didn't embrace Islam after the Battle of Badr. He was very influential, so he had a large group of cronies around him, his henchmen, his cronies, his sycophants and his followers. And they stuck with him even in opposition to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. That's how influential he was. So he decided not to believe and embrace Islam. Others didn't believe along with him. And in fact, on one occasion, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam went to visit Sa'd ibn Ubadah radiyallahu anhu who was ill. Sa'd ibn Ubadah was one of the leaders of the Khazraj tribe, the same tribe as Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul. So, <clears throat> when the Prophet went to visit Sa'd ibn Ubadah on the way he passed by Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul's gathering. So he was seated there along with his cronies. And Prophet ﷺ recited Qur'an to them. This was in the very early days, so he wasn't a Muslim. He hadn't declared his Islam. Prophet ﷺ recited Qur'an. He advised them. So Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul rather arrogantly said to him, O oh Muhammad, whatever you say is good, but... If people want to accept it, if people want to accept it and embrace it, they will come to you. So rather you stay at home and whoever wants to listen to you will come to you. Don't crowd us in our gatherings and in our uh, places with your words. So then some of the Sahaba who responded to him and there was a verbal exchange. Anyway, Rasulullah was quite hurt by what he said because it was very rude. It's remarkable. He was very diplomatic and very calm and spoke very politely and diplomatically when it came to everyone else to the extent that he was seen as a kind of peacemaker. This is why they wanted to, these warring clans and tribes wanted to make him the chieftain. The chief of chiefs, the great chief. But when he came to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he became extremely rude on one occasion, telling, uh, covering his face. And when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam's donkey kicked up dust, so he covered his face with the dust uh, flying in the air, rising in the air. And he said to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, move your donkey away from me, for indeed its stench offends me. So one of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum said, by Allah, even the donkey of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam is more fragrant than you. So when it came to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, all his bitterness and resentment and rudeness came to the fore, and his diplomacy and politeness and his political and social skills 
disappeared. So similarly on this occasion, he was so rude to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam was hurt and the effects could be seen on his noble face. So then the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam went to visit Sa'd ibn Ubadah radiyallahu anhu who was ill. So when he entered, Sa'd ibn Ubadah radiyallahu anhu saw the subdued demeanor of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and the shadow on his face. So he said to him, Ya Rasulullah, what is with you? So the Prophet said, this is what Sa'd ibn Ubadah, sorry, this is what Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Sarul just said. So Sa'd ibn Ubadah actually said to him, Ya Rasulullah, ignore him and be gentle with him. For indeed, before your arrival, we had gathered to crown him with a wreath. And this is why he feels bitter and resentful towards you. And this is exactly what Usaid ibn Hudayr said to the Prophet many years later in Ghazbatu Bani al-Mustaliq, which I will mention later. So Sa'd ibn Ubadah said this in the earliest days of the Prophet's life in Medina. And Usaid ibn Hudayr, who was another Ansari Sahabi, he said exactly the same on another occasion. So... At that time, Abdullah ibn Ubayy ibn Salul wasn't a Muslim. But later, after the Battle of Badr, what happened is he realized that the Prophet the waiting game is over. The Prophet star has risen in his estimates. His position has become much more powerful. And now it's not worth resisting him openly. So, ostensibly, embrace Islam and go with the flow and where and when possible oppose Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and the Muslims and undermine his authority from within. So Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul told his cronies that the affair of Muhammad has taken its turn, i.e. in the right direction. So let us embrace his religion and follow him. From that time onwards, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul would attend the masjid and then every Jumu'ah Salah, when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam would come to deliver the khutbah on Jumu'ah, the masjid would be full. Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul would stand up. And this was his influential position. This is actually mentioned in the narrations. That when he would rise in Masjid al-Nabi sallallahu alayhi wasallam and speak just before the khutbah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, no one would say anything to him. Everyone would listen to him. So what would he say? Every week he would stand up and address the entire congregation and say to them, O people, this is Allah's messenger. Allah has honored you with him. And Allah has given you might and dignity through him. Therefore, listen to him. Assist him. Support him. Listen to him and obey him and follow him. And then he would sit down. Subhanallah. He would say this every single week. This is hypocrisy. No shame. What then happened a year later in the battle of 
When the Quraysh arrived in Medina to avenge their fallen in the Battle of Badr, they had vowed to take revenge against Rasulullah So they now marched with a 3,000 strong army. The Quraysh of Mecca in the Battle of Badr a year earlier in Ramadan, they were 1,000 strong. The Muslims were just over 300. So it was, the Muslims were a third of the Meccan force. But they inflicted a decisive defeat on the Meccans. The Quraysh vowed to avenge their fallen and dead. And so they began preparations. And then a year later, in Shawwal, the Quraysh marched towards Medina. And they came to the outskirts of Medina. Now, this time there were 3,000 strong. The Prophet وسلم, upon receiving news of their imminent arrival, he convened a war council and he began soliciting people's opinions as to how they should make a stand and defend the city best. Some people of the opinion, in fact, Rasulullah himself was of the opinion that the inhabitants of Medina should stay within the city and not face them in open battle. That was his own opinion. But some of the younger Sahaba, عنهم, some, who hadn't participated in Badr, they were very eager, and they wanted to face the Meccans in open battle. And this is what Allah refers to in a verse of the Quran, وَلَقَدْ كُنْتُمْ تَمَنَّوْنَ الْمَوْتُ مِنْ قَبْلِ مِنْ قَبْلِ أَنْ تَلْقَوْهُ فَقَدْ رَأَيْتُمُوهُ وَأَنْتُمْ تَنْظُرُوهُ That indeed you were aspiring to death before you actually met it. وَلَقَدْ كُنْتُمْ تَمَنَّوْنَ الْمَوْتُ مِنْ قَبْلِ أَنْ تَلْقَوْهُ فَقَدْ رَأَيْتُمُوهُ Well now you have surely seen it. وَأَنْتُمْ تَنْظُرُونَ Whilst witnessing it and staring at it. So before you were simply aspiring to death, but now you have seen it in such a way that you were staring death in its face. So this verse is a reference to the unfortunate events of the Battle of Uhud. And prior to that, these were some of the younger Sahaba who were very passionate and eager, some of whom had missed an opportunity in Badr. So they wanted to compensate for that by facing the Quraysh in open battle in uh, in Medina, outside Medina. But the Prophet ﷺ himself was of the opinion of staying within the city and defending uh, the city from within. Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul was also of the same opinion. However, after consulting, subhanAllah, this is the method of Rasulullah ﷺ. What he actually did is that when the Sahaba عنه, some of them pressed on him and they offered their opinion that we should face them in open battle. Eventually, Rasulullah shed his own opinion and went with the opinion of the Sahaba, the others. Imagine, this was a war council. 
Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam actually abandoned his own opinion and adopted the opinion of some of the other Sahaba radiyallahu anhum who weren't unanimous. This was just one group amongst them. And then the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam donned his armor and his helmet. And then when others pressed him that, Ya Rasulullah, we should remain within the city, his reply was, once the messenger of Allah has worn his armor and his helmet, there is no turning back. So then the Prophet ﷺ, the next morning, this was on Jumu'ah, the next morning on Saturday morning, he marched towards Uhud, where the Quraysh had now camped. So the battleground was to be the plain of Uhud, under the shadow of the mountain. When the Prophet ﷺ marched towards Uhud, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, he had, well, he had a number of followers. And there were some of them who were just members of his tribe and who followed him. He marched with them for a short distance and then he turned around and actually said to everyone, that, why didn't Muhammad listen to me? I strongly gave my opinion that we shouldn't face them in open battle. We should have remained in the city. Why did Muhammad refuse to listen to me? Why should we go and fight, be killed in this manner? So let's return. So he actually marched a certain distance and then turned around along with 300 of his followers. So the Muslims originally were a thousand. There was still a third of the force, just like Badr. Over 300 in the face of a thousand, now there were a thousand in the face of 3,000, still a third of the Meccan force. But now, with 300 returning, they were one quarter of the force of the Meccans. Unfortunately, the Battle of Uhud wasn't an outright victory for the Muslims. Initially, they scored a victory, but then later, uh, because of a strategic error and the failure of some of them to fulfill the command and instruction of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam to the letter, the Muslims suffered a huge setback and many were wounded and martyred. In fact, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam was wounded in the Battle of Uhud. And uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed a number of verses of the Holy Qur'an reviewing, reviewing the battle and pointing out the errors of the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum on that occasion. So Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul's turning back and leading a large group with him was instrumental in the Muslims suffering on that occasion. And in fact, this was uh, an outright rebellion against Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Amazingly, hypocrisy has no shame. So what happened after the battle of Uhud? The next Jumu'ah, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Sa'ul stood up again and said, O people, this is the messenger of Allah. Allah has honored you with him and Allah has strengthened you and gave you dignity. Assist him and support him and listen to him and obey him. So, subhanAllah. So the Sahaba radiallahu anhum who were around him, they began pulling at him, at his clothes. 
and saying to him, Ya Allah, O enemy of Allah, you say this after what you did in Uhud? Away with you. Silence. And they began tugging at his clothes and making him sit. So Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, <coughs> he brushed them off. And then rather than sitting down, he turned around and started walking away. And whilst walking away, he began muttering loudly that, what have I done? What have I done? As though I've done something... He actually said, what have I done? As though I've done something terrible? That I stood up to support him? I stood up to strengthen his affair? This is hypocrisy, delusion. Failure to recognize one's faults, one's error. And when reminded and when corrected, to become defiant and even more arrogant. When it is said to him, fear Allah, rather than paying heed to these words, rather than becoming humble, Submitting to the name of Allah and his authority, rather than rectifying oneself and acknowledging one's errors. No. Arrogance in sin seizes him. So, is there any remedy for such a person? Is there any remedy for such a person? There isn't. A normal person, when you speak to them about Allah and his Rasul though they may not be able to absorb the message entirely on that occasion, because their judgment's clouded, their mind is clouded, they are very passionate and emotional and maybe irrational, still, there is some element of haya and shame in a person. So, they may not accept it entirely, but at least they are silent. They're not defiant. They may be passive, not actively accommodating, but they're not defiant. They don't compound sin upon sin. So, when you talk to certain people at times, they may be doing wrong and you tell them, I remember once when we were children, there was an individual who, an adult, who did something wrong, grievously wrong. And as a group, we approached him. We're children, but as a group, we approached him. And we said to him, why did you do this? And his response was, how dare you? Show me respect. Show some respect. And the reason I mention that is I've seen that. I saw that in childhood. And then over the years, I've actually witnessed a repetition of that with so many different people. So what they've done is terrible. But when you speak to them, Rather than acknowledging what they've done, and rather than melting in shame and dissolving in shame, their response is, how dare you talk to me like that? Show some respect. So 
when even the words of Allah and his Rasul sallallahu alayhi wasallam cannot penetrate a person's heart and mind, and they become defiant in sin, and arrogant in sin, although this doesn't apply to everybody, because in that verse Allah is speaking about the hypocrites, that when it is said to him, fear Allah, arrogance in sin seizes him, so what does Allah mention as his remedy? So what, should you, what, what is to be done? The Qur'an tells us thereafter nothing. فَحِسْبُهُ جَهَنَّمُ Jahannam is sufficient for him. Nothing else. So, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, on that occasion, when the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, when he stood up and said what he said, they tugged at his clothes and pulled him and dragged him and said, O oh, enemy of Allah, how dare you? You say all this after what you did in Uhud? So then he brushed them off and arrogantly started walking away. And whilst walking away, even then he failed to understand what he had done. He began muttering loudly, as though I've done something terrible, that I stood up to support him and strengthen his affair. And he kept on saying that until he reached the masjid door at the back. So some of the Sahaba anhu were still arriving. Because remember, this was before the khutbah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Some of the Ansari Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, they met him at the door. And they said to him, oh Abdullah, where are you going? And because he was angry as well. So he said, um, I stood up, strengthening his affair. And they began abusing me as though I did something terrible. As though I said something terrible. I stood up only to support him. So they realized that he had done something wrong. So those Sahaba actually said to him, Go back and seek the forgiveness of Rasulullah. And request him to seek Allah's forgiveness on your behalf. So at the door of Masjid al Nabi, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul's reply was, with a dismissive wave of the arm, he said, I have no interest in him seeking Allah's forgiveness for me. About Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa he said, I have no interest or need of him, meaning Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa seeking Allah's forgiveness for me. Allahu Akbar. So this is one occasion there were other occasions as well. And another occasion was in Ghazwat ibn al-Mustaliq, which is actually the topic of the next two verses. So I'll defer discussion of that till then. So it wasn't just Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, there were others as well, who were approached by friends, colleagues, acquaintances, family members, and who were reminded to go and seek the forgiveness of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and to request him to seek forgiveness on their behalf from Allah. But <clears throat> whenever they were requested to do so, their response was, As Allah says, they turned their necks. One of the famous imams, Imam Sufyan, rahimahullah, he, when he narrated this hadith, and he commented on this verse of the Qur'an, his students relate that he actually demonstrated how they would turn their necks. So he recited, and he did this rather violently and not calmly and slowly. So he wasn't like, 
like, uh, slowly. Rather, Imam Sufyan, rahimahullah, when he narrated this verse, he said, They turn their heads. He did this arrogantly. That this is how they do it. And, and with steely eyes. So with, sharp, with a sharp, steely stare and with a violent thrust and twist of the neck. So Allah says, وَإِذَا قِيلَ لَهُمْ And when it is said to them, تَعَالَوْ كَمْ يَسْتَغْفِرْ لَكُمْ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ Allah's Messenger will seek forgiveness on your behalf. رؤوسهم, they turn their heads. وَرَأَيْتَهُمْ يَصُدُّونَ And you see them resisting. وَهُمْ مُسْتَكْبِرُونَ Whilst being arrogant. Arrogance is not the attribute of a mu'min. Arrogance is the quality of a hypocrite. It doesn't mean everyone who has arrogance in them is a munafiq, no. Inshallah, I will, also, I will explain this uh, later, that Allah and His Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam have warned us of the traits of hypocrisy. For instance, lying. Lying is a trait of hypocrisy. False testimony is a famous trait of hypocrisy. That famous hadith of Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As radiyallahu anhum relates by Imam Bukhari and Muslim. Arba'un man kunna fihi kana munafiq min khalisa wa man kanat fihi khaslatun minhun kanat fihi khaslatun min al-nifaqi hatta yada'aha idha atumina khan wa idha haddatha kathab wa idha ahada ghadar wa idha khasama fajar. That there are four things which are found in a person. He is a pure hypocrite. And if one of these four is found in him, then he has in him a trait of hypocrisy until he abandons it. And the four are, when he is trusted, he betrays. When he speaks, he lies. When he pledges, he breaks his pledge. And number four, when he disputes, he sins. Now, inshallah, I'll actually devote session to the explanation of this hadith and its commentary. But these are famous traits. But it doesn't mean everyone who lies is a munafiq. It doesn't mean everyone who breaks their promises is a munafiq. We have no right to say that. And in fact, the ulama agree that even if someone has all four traits in them, it's for Allah to judge whether he is a mu'min or a munafiq. We still cannot judge him. Because the ulama agree that sins do not expel a person from the fold of Islam. No matter how... Serious and heinous they may be. Sins do not expel a person from the fold of Islam. That's why Imam Bukhari, Imam Muslim and others have related that Abu Dhar al-Ghifari radiyallahu an he was told by Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam he was present when the messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam mentioned that whoever believes in me uh, he will enter Jannah. So Abu Dhar al-Ghifari radiyallahu an said وَإِنْ زَنَى وَإِنْ سَرَقَ Even if he commits adultery and steals. So the Prophet ﷺ said, وَإِنْ زَنَى وَإِنْ سَرَقَ Even though he may commit adultery and steal. So Abu Dhar Ghifari repeated it. وَإِنْ زَنَى وَإِنْ سَرَقَ Prophet ﷺ said, وَإِنْ زَنَى وَإِنْ سَرَقَ وَإِنْ زَنَى وَإِنْ سَرَقَ وَإِنْ زَنَى وَإِنْ سَرَقَ عَلَى رَغْمِ أَنْفِ أَبِي ذَرَ Despite the dislike of Abu Dhar, or despite the disapproval of Abu Dhar. So, 
as a result of this and other ahadith, the ulama agree that sins do not expel a person from the fold of Islam. So lying is a sin, breaking a pledge is a sin, uh, going beyond the boundaries in a dispute is a sin, and all of these traits, uh, betraying someone's trust is a sin, but even all four sins collectively do not remove a person from the fold of Islam. So it's for Allah to judge. So it doesn't mean that anyone who's arrogant is necessarily a munafiq. But just as Allah and his Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam have identified these traits as being the attributes of hypocrisy, similarly here, arrogance should be identified as a trait of hypocrisy. A mu'min is not arrogant. This is the behavior of a munafiq. And arrogance is a huge obstacle. It's a huge barrier to so many things. In fact, this is another topic in itself, arrogance, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala When a person commits sins, it's an act of disobedience, disobeying Allah in his might and in his majesty, in his greatness. But it's the disobedience. It's like this, someone breaks the law. Imagine an emperor, someone, a monarch of yore, someone breaks the law. The monarch has legislated that this is illegal, this is a crime. Someone commits a crime, someone contravenes that law. What happens? It's an act of disobedience. The person's punished, jailed, the king wishes, forgives, overlooks, excuses, fine. But Imagine if someone doesn't just commit a crime, contravene a single law or even a set of laws, is not just a delinquent, but someone rises in rebellion and challenges the authority of the king and disputes his position as a monarch and in fact incites rebellion in others and tries to usurp the throne of the king. What happens then? It's a completely different scenario altogether. This is high treason. This is the ultimate act of rebellion. So with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, although there's no comparison, it's just a way of explaining, with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when a person commits sins, no matter how sinful that person may be, it's an act of disobedience. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wishes, Allah can forgive. Allah will forgive. But these are acts of disobedience. But in the ahadith, from the ahadith we learn that when a person is arrogant, that person challenges Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in his kibriya and in his azamah. Allah calls kibriya pride, and Azamah, greatness, his cloaks. And whoever challenges, whoever exhibits pride and displays 
arrogance, that person is actually challenging Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in his greatness, in his majesty, in his pride. In fact, one of the names of Allah Azza wa Jalla is Al-Mutakabbir, the proud one, the great one. So arrogance is not the attribute of a mu'min. And as I was saying earlier, it's a huge obstacle. It's an obstacle to many things. It's an obstacle to Allah's mercy. It's an obstacle to change. This is why Allah says, when a person is defined as a result of arrogance, there's no hope for him. فَحَسْبُهُ Jahannam Jahannam is his abode. Jahannam is sufficient for him. Nothing else. Arrogance is an obstacle to hidayah. Arrogance is an obstacle to understanding. Arrogance is an obstacle to recognizing the truth. That's why Allah says in a verse, I will turn away from my signs those who are arrogant upon the earth without rights. So if someone's arrogant, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blinds them. Not physically, but blinds their hearts, casts a veil over them. So much so Allah continues in the verse, even if they see every sign, they will not believe in it. In fact, Allah then continues in the same verse. If they see the path of righteousness, they will not adopt it. But if they see the path of waywardness, they will take it. So, Arrogance leads a person to being delusional. Delusion results in a person seeing haq in batil and batil in haq. Seeing the path of waywardness as being the path of truth and guidance, and the path of guidance they see as a path of waywardness and misguidance. That's because of their delusion. Where does this arise from? Takabbur, as Allah says, fil ard. So, Takabbur, pride, is a huge obstacle. It's an obstacle to guidance, to sight, to understanding, to knowledge, to wisdom. And thus, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says here, You will see them turning away, وَهُمْ مُسْتَكْبِرُونَ The arrogance of Abdullah ibn Ubayy ibn Salul and others like him amongst the munafiqoon led them to dismissively saying, We have no need of the forgiveness and the istighfar of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Moving on to the next verse. Sawa'un alayhim astaghfarta lahum am lam tastaghfir lahum. Lay yaghfir Allahu lahum. Inna Allah la yahdi al-qawm al-fasiqeen. Allah says, it is equal for them, i.e. these hypocrites, these munafiqoon. That you seek forgiveness for them or you don't seek forgiveness for them. Allah will never forgive them. SubhanAllah. The munafiqoon had gone so far, so far, that they even dismissed the istighfar of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam saying, I have no need for him to forgive me or for him to seek forgiveness on my behalf. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying in turn, don't worry. They are not interested 
in seeking your forgiveness or in requesting you to do istighfar on their behalf, it is of no consequence. Don't worry. Because now, I have taken the decision, Allah says, whether even you, O Messenger of Allah, do istighfar for them or don't, they are condemned to such a degree that even if you do istighfar for them, I won't forgive them. Sawa'un alayhim, it is equal. Whether you it is equal whether you do istighfar for them, seek forgiveness on their behalf, or you don't. Emphatic, no. Never will Allah forgive them. Indeed, Allah does not guide sinful or transgressing people. The word fasiq, we hear the word fasiq a lot. And we hear the word fasiqun, fasqeen in the Quran. What does it mean? Although it's commonly translated as sinful, and fusuq or fisq is translated as sin, and fasiq is translated as a sinner, yes, it is. But originally the word fisq and fusuq means transgression. So fasiq is a transgressor. Not just a simple sinner, but a transgressor. And where did the word transgression come from? Fisk means khuruj. It means leaving. Coming out. So here's a boundary set by Allah. Anyone who comes out of that boundary is a fasiq. Anyone who transgresses that limit is a fasiq. This is why one of the uh, a name for a mass is fawaisiq. The little one that comes out. It's a diminutive of fasiq. So fawaisiq is a diminutive of fasiq, which means the little one that comes out, because when a mouse comes out of its hole, it's called a fawaisiq. In fact, it's mentioned in the hadith. Fawaisiq, fawaisiqa. So, Indeed, Allah does not guide the transgressing people. We now move on to the next verse, just two more verses, and we end this section of Surah Al-Munafiqun. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala continues with the description of the Munafiqun, but again, it narrows down even further. Now, it actually refers to one person, the same Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Sarul. Allah says, هُمُ الَّذِينِ يَقُولُونَ لَا تُنْفِقُوا عَلَى مَنْ عِنْدَ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ حَتَّى يَنْفَضُوا They are the ones who say, do not spend on those who are with the Messenger of Allah until they disperse. What is the background to the revelation of this verse? I've explained this in thorough detail in my commentary on Hadith al-Ifq from Sahih al-Bukhari. The the story, the famous long hadith of Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha when she was falsely accused. So that long hadith, this is part of that, so I've explained it in thorough detail, they do refer to it. But just to recap, in the fifth year of Hijrah, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam travelled out of Medina with an army, not a very large army, but a contingent, 
to launch a preemptive strike against a, a tribe, a hostile tribe called Banul Mustaliq. The Banul Mustaliq were actually preparing to attack Medina. So this was a preemptive strike against them. They inhabited a very large, because they were nomads, but the area that they inhabited was to the north of modern-day Jeddah. And that entire, that region, to the north of uh, Mecca, and in fact to the north of Jeddah as well, uh, alongside the Red Sea coast, and to the south-west of Medina. So the Prophet ﷺ marched towards them to tackle them and launch a preemptive strike against them. Thus, this became known, this was in the month of Sha'ban, in the fifth year of Hijrah. This came to be known as Ghazwatu Bani al-Mustaliq, the campaign of Banu al-Mustaliq. Many events took place on that occasion, and this is one of them. It's also known as Ghazwatu al-Muraysir, so it has two names, Ghazwatu Bani al-Mustaliq and Ghazwatu al-Muraysir. The reason it's called Ghazwat al-Muraisi is that the Prophet ﷺ marched against the tribe Banu al-Mustaliq, but he eventually faced them at one of their watering wells, and where that area where the watering well was and where the battle eventually took place was Muraisi. So as a result, it's known as both the campaign of Muraisi the name of the location where the actual battle took place, and also the campaign of Banu Mustaliq, the name of the tribe against whom the Prophet ﷺ marched. So after the battle, it was a, it, there were minimal casualties on both sides, but after the battle, when the Prophet ﷺ was returning to Medina, again, the remarkable thing is, the hypocrites actually, some of the hypocrites went with him. Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul was actually on that expedition. On the return journey towards Medina, one of the things that happened was that they camped at a watering hole. And since they were in the desert, people, uh, water was scarce. So what happened is they would normally have ruad, pioneers and scouts who would go up ahead and uh, locate water, and then prepare the water, watering hole in the well for the others. So when they eventually arrived, two people came to the watering hole. They must have been the first ones there. One, they were both Muslim. One was a muhajir. He was actually a worker of Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab. His name was Jahjah. So he was a worker, an employee of Umar ibn al-Khattab. And he was a muhajir. Now, this detail is important. The other person was someone called Sinan. He was from Medina. He was an Ansari. Muslim, but Ansari. So he wasn't a muhajir. So you had a Meccan muhajir, Jahja, and you had a Madani Ansari, Sinan. They both came together at the watering hole. One of them was, he liked a bit of a joke. So they both disagreed about who should water first and take water, etc. As a result of which, 
with one's humour, eventually the humour died out and they became engaged in a very strong disagreement. In the disagreement, one of them kicked the other on the buttock. He was a bit of a, he liked it. He liked doing such things. So in his argument, he kicked the other. So this resulted in a physical altercation, as a result of which the, the Ansari called out to the Ansar, saying, Oh, Ansar, help! And Yal al-Ansar. And the Jahjah called out to the Muhajirun, Yal al-Muhajirin. And thus, a group of Muhajir, Muhajirun came, and a group of Ansar came. And there was a strong disagreement. The Prophet ﷺ heard these shouts, and his instant response and reaction was, "Ma baru da'wal jahiliya, He said, "What is this call of jahiliya? What is this call of bigotry and tribal jahiliya, tribalism?" This is of jahiliyyah. Abandon it, shun it, for indeed it is stenchful. It is putrid. So he advised the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, tell him, abandon such calls, because the Prophet worked so hard to root out bigotry, factionism, and tribalism. So then what happened is the matter was resolved. It didn't uh, degenerate into something more serious. The matter was resolved. Then, obviously, it became the talk of the whole camp because they were camped. Some of the Ansar, some of them went back and word got to Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul who was in his own tent with a, with a group of people. And there were Muslims as well as Munafiqun present in that small gathering. There was a young little Sahabi, Zayd ibn Arqam, who had actually gone, travelled for the first time on this expedition because he wanted to be with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He was an Ansari Sahabi. So he was present in that gathering where Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul was. So when Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul was informed about what had just happened at the watering hole and the well, he said, is that what they did? Because remember, he was a Madani. He was originally from Medina. So he took the side of the Ansar and he resented the Muhajirun, the Meccans. So he said, have they done this? Did they really do that? That they called out against the Ansar, against us, to each other? That our Ansari companion was abused and attacked, and then they call out to each other in this way. He said, Have they really done that? He said, By Allah, we know that these Muhajirun from Mecca, they have crowded us in our city of Medina. They have crowded us. And they have rivaled us. They have rivaled us. They have crowded us in our own city. And by Allah, I do not see any parable. I know of no parable that describes us and these Jalabib. Look at the name he gave them. He gave the Muhajirun the name 
Jalabib, which means cloaks. Jilbab, which we know as ladies wear, Jilbab is a cloak that covers someone from top to bottom. And it would be any large wrap that was known as Jilbab that covered a person entirely. Not necessarily the face, meaning the whole body from top to bottom, but not necessarily the face. So this was known as a Jilbab. Now, of course, men would wear it as well, i.e. if a man was... Uh, wrapped in a long, in a blanket or in a large cloak, which was a single cloak. A lot of the poor would do that. They'd have a single cloak. They'd wrap themselves. So, cheekily and very contemptuously, these munafiqun would refer to the poor muhajirun sahaba radiyallahu anhum who would wear these jalabi, which is a plural of jilbab. They would call them cloaks. So they'd actually give them the name Jalabib, Jilbabs. So mocking the Jilbab is a trait of Nifaq. So Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Sarul said, By Allah, I do not know of any parable that describes us and these cloaks, these Jalabib, these Jilbabs, referring to the poor Muhajirun of Makkah. I know of no similitude, no parable that describes us and them, except the old saying of the Arabs, Simmin kalbak ya'kulk, fatten your dog until it devours you. Because we have fed them, we have nurtured them, we have accommodated them, we've shared our wealth with them, we've opened up our city and our homes for them, and now they devour us. And then he went on in his tirade, and said, I have told you before that this is your fault. You have opened your homes to them. You have accommodated them. And now this is what they have done to us. I have, I have said to you before, do not share your wealth with them. Do not spend on them. Do not feed them. Do not share your food with them. Do not share your wealth with them until... They disperse and they leave our city and find another abode. And then he said, When the mighty shall return to Medina, When we shall return to Medina, the mighty shall remove and banish the weak, the lowly. And by that he meant... Him and his fellows being the mighty honored ones and Rasulullah and his companions being the meek, weak, lowly ones. So this was his tirade. Zayd ibn Arqam who was a child, he was present, he heard all of this. He came and he told his uncle. He told one of the, not his blood uncle, but someone whom he regarded as an uncle. That was Sa'd ibn Ubadah Sa'd ibn Ubadah radiyallahu anhu went and told the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam summoned Zayd ibn Arqam. Zayd ibn Arqam came before him. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam questioned him. And he was a child. So Zayd ibn Arqam radiyallahu anhu related all that he had heard in the gathering of Abdullah ibn Ubayy ibn Salul. 
So then the Prophet summoned Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul and he came. Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul came and lying, swearing falsely in the name of Allah is nothing to a munafiq. Words are cheap. So he came and said, by Allah, I have not said these words. I swear in the name of Allah, I have said nothing of the sort. He completely denied it. And swearing repeatedly in the name of Allah. So some of the other senior sahaba radiallahu anhum and others who were present said, Ya Rasulullah, after all, Abdullah is a leader of his people. And this is a child. Zayd ibn Arqam, indeed he was a child. Maybe he misheard, maybe he misunderstood. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa fell silent. He didn't say anything. Zayd ibn Arqam radiallahu anhu left. Remember, he was, a, he was a child with a fragile state of emotions and mind in his innocence. And he said, I retreated into my tent and I spent the evening and the night weeping. I just continued to weep. All I did was eat, weep. In fact, the evening, because they actually traveled that night. He said, I just continued to weep. And nothing hurt me more and the fact that I came on this journey for the first time in the hope of being with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa and now my state and my plight was such that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa was led to believe the word of a munafiq, oh sorry, of Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, someone like him who said all that he said, and I was belied, and my word was rejected. So he was extremely embarrassed and hurt and continuously weeping. The Prophet ﷺ realized that there was fitna in the camp. So in his wisdom, he said to the Sahaba anhum, break camp, gather belongings, and let's march. So even though that wasn't the time to march, he said, let's march. He marched with them for the remainder of the day, for that night, continuously until the next morning, until the sun had risen and he had risen high enough for there to be heat. The people were exhausted. As soon as the Prophet ﷺ said, here we settle and camp, the people hit the floor, hit the ground and slept. The Prophet ﷺ did this deliberately so that people would not have time and leisure to engage in conversation and thereby increase the fitna. Later when they woke, the Prophet ﷺ traveled and as they were traveling, Allah Azza wa Jal revealed the verses of Surah Al-Munafiqun including these words They are the ones who say do not spend on those who are by the messenger of Allah until they disperse And to Allah belong the treasures of the heavens and the earth But the hypocrites do not understand they say that when we shall return to Medina, the mighty shall banish from it the meek. And to Allah belongs honor and might, and to his messenger and the believers. But the hypocrites do not know. So the Prophet summoned Zayd ibn Arqam When he summoned him, the Prophet twisted his ear. He was a child. 
he twisted his ear and smiled at him and said to him, your ears heard correctly, your ears were faithful, for Allah has revealed verses testifying to your truth. Allahu Akbar. Zayd ibn Arqam was a child, but when he later related this in his adult life, he would say, by Allah, what the Prophet said and did to him, which is, he twisted his ear and smiled at him and said to him that your ears heard the truth. Zayd ibn Arqam said, I would not, it does not please me that I would exchange just that for eternal life in this world. If I was given a choice of living for eternity in this dunya, or having that one moment with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa hadith of Tirmidhi, that he's twisted my ears and smiled at me, I would choose that one moment. I would not exchange that for eternal life on earth. If you twist anyone's ear today, even with a smile, you'll be enjoying eternity at Her Majesty's pleasure. So, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, when he returned to Medina, what happened is that his remarkable, one of the miraculous features of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam's life is that his greatest enemies, their wives and their children, were devoted followers. Uqbat ibn Abi Mu'ayt in Mecca, I've spoken about him in detail in the past. His children embraced Islam. Even though he was the one who put his neck, who put his foot on the neck of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam in sujood, who threw the afterbirth and the amniotic sack on his noble back and he was burdened with the weight, he couldn't rise from sujood in al-Masjid al-Haram. That was Uqbat ibn Abi Mu'ayd. His children embraced Islam. Umayyad ibn Khalaf's son, Safwan ibn Umayyah, embraced Islam. Abu Jahl's son, Ikrimah, embraced Islam. And they were devoted followers of Rasulullah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, who became shuhada. Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, his son was called Abdullah. His name was Hubab. The Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, changed his name to Abdullah. Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul's son, Abdullah, was a sincere believer. His daughters embraced Islam. And even Abdullah, the son of Abdullah, he died as a shaheed. So this, this was one of the remarkable features of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, seerah and life, that the children and the loved ones of his bitterest enemies became his most devoted followers. So Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul's son, Abdullah, was a devoted follower. SubhanAllah. When he heard what his father had done, and the people were returning to Medina, so when they arrived at the, uh, on the outskirts of Medina, his son, who was a devoted follower to his father, children were loyal. Children were loyal. It was the way of the Arabs. And in fact, it was the way of most of the world. Children were respectful and dutiful to their fathers and parents. Abdullah, the son of Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, actually said 
to the Prophet Ya Rasulullah, the people of Medina now, that there is no one more loyal and dutiful to his father than I am to my father. And in fact, do you know what he said? He said, out of respect for my father, I have never looked at him squarely and fully in the face. That was Abdullah, the son of Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul. He said, I never looked at my father squarely and fully in the face. I never stared at him. Not even in, not even casually. These days, children stand up to their fathers. So Abdullah said to the Prophet wasallam, Ya Rasulullah, I have heard talk of people wishing to avenge you against my father. Ya Rasulullah, I come to you. And I say to you that the people of Medina know that there is no one more loyal and dutiful to my father, to his father than I am to my father. And so much so that I have never looked at him squarely in the face out of respect for him and in awe of him. But a messenger of Allah. If anyone is to retaliate against my father, it should be no one else. For I will do it. Prophet said, no. Despite that, when they arrived on the outskirts of Medina, Abdullah, the son of the father, he was waiting on the outskirts of Medina with a drawn sword. When his father arrived, he made his father dismount. And under the sword, he told his father, I will not allow you into the city of Medina until the Messenger وسلم, grants you permission and until you publicly declare that you are the Adal and he is the Az, that you are the meek and lowly and he is the honored and mighty. So he made his father say that. And then the Prophet وسلم, came. SubhanAllah, the Prophet وسلم, in his compassion, he said to him, Oh Abdullah, what are you doing? And then when he said, I will not allow him to enter the city until you grant permission, Prophet وسلم, told the son Abdullah that leave him, let your father go. So then Abdullah the son let his father Abdullah go. So this is a reference to, these two verses are a reference to that occasion. There's a lot more detail, and I've covered that in my commentary of Hadith al-Ifq, the Hadith of the Great Calumny, so do refer to it. Just one thing, Allah says here, And to Allah belongs, and to Allah belong the treasures of the heavens and the earth, but the hypocrites do not understand. The love of wealth, the blinding love of wealth, again, is a trait of hypocrisy. Because the hypocrites are all about show. Everything's shallow. Their words are shallow. Their deeds are shallow. They are shallow. It's all about appearance, cosmetics, dress, and rottenness and corruption and hollowness within. Their understanding is shallow, the munafiqun. And this is why Allah says, that these munafiqun actually thought that, oh, all you need to do is stop spending on these refugees, on these muhajirun from Mecca, 
They are the ones who say, do not spend on those who are with the Messenger of Allah until they disperse. That's what Abdullah ibn Ubayy ibn Salul and others said. Don't share your wealth with these muhajirun of Mecca until they become tired and they leave, they disperse. They go find another city or abode. What this verse tells us is that the munafiqun, they thought that the understanding of the muhajirun is as shallow as theirs. They thought they just like us. We are devoted to wealth. They are devoted to wealth. It's all about money. We worship money. They worship money. So if we deny them wealth, they'll disappear. They didn't know that what kept the muhajirun in Medina, despite their poverty, despite their privations, despite their suffering, despite their sacrifices, was not wealth, was not the palm groves or the orchards or the fields of Medina, was not the oasis, was not any wealth that they could aspire to or covet. No. What kept them in Medina wasn't wealth or any of these aforementioned things. What kept them in Medina was the love of Allah and his Rasul sallallahu But the munafiqun said, no, no. They are slaves of wealth just as we are. So we deny them wealth, they'll disappear. And that's why Allah says, To Allah belongs, to Allah belong the treasures of the heavens and the earth. But the hypocrites do not understand. What's the meaning of to Allah belong the treasures of the heavens and the earth? Well, if the treasures of the heavens and the earth belong to Allah, why doesn't Allah give the treasures of the heavens and the earth to the poor muhajirun of Makkah? Because that is not the way of Allah and his Rasul That is actually the sunnah of Allah. Allah does not give to those whom he loves. Rasulullah didn't give to those whom he loved. He didn't. This is a remarkable thing. Who could have Allah loved more than Rasulullah Did he make him an emperor? A monarch? King? Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam lived simply, suffered pangs of hunger, suffered thirst, suffered privations. He and his family made sacrifices. Despite the treasures of the heavens belonging to Allah, Allah denied them to his beloved. Sa'd ibn Abi Waqqas radiyallahu an in that famous hadith of Bukhari where it's mentioned the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam distributed wealth. He gave to others, but he denied wealth to that one person. Sa'ad radiyallahu an thought that maybe the Prophet has denied him wealth and hasn't included him in the distribution because maybe he's displeased with him or he doubts him. And I know him to be a sincere believer. So he, he questioned the Prophet Long hadith. Prophet eventually told him that I don't I give to those. I deny, meaning I prefer others over those whom I love. And I give to others and I withhold from others because I rely on the state of their hearts with Allah. They have no need of it. So the Prophet would withhold from those whom he loved. And that's why that beautiful story after Ghazbat Hunayn, when 
the Prophet وسلم, they captured much, many spoils of war and much booty after the Ghazwa of Hunayn, which included countless camels and goats and flocks of sheep and goats. And some of the Sahaba say, we saw the entire valley filled with animals. And remember, animals are extremely valuable. In fact, even now in many parts of the world, when people get married, the dowry is still animals. And uh, animals can be very valuable. So in those days, wealth was marked, and it still is in most rural parts of the world, with animals, livestock, cattle, flocks. So they said the whole valley was filled with animals, goats, camels. And listen to this. So the Prophet wasallam, he gave all of that wealth to some of the recently embraced, recent Muslims, those who had just embraced a few weeks ago, he, and the leaders, he gave them goats, camels, hundred here, there. The Ansar Sahaba, عنهم, they said, what's this? Some of them, they, well, they didn't, not in as many words, but they, they did feel that, what is this? And some of them made comments like, we are the ones who made the sacrifices. But the wealth is all going to the others, the Quraysh. And they have just only recently converted. Now, after the conquest of Mecca, we are the ones who have made sacrifices. It seems as though now that Mecca has been conquered, Rasulullah won't return to Medina. Rather, he'll stay here. He will remain with his people, the Quraysh. Word got around and eventually to Rasulullah Word got to Sa'd ibn Ubadah And remember Sa'd ibn Ubadah was one of the leaders of the Khazraj So he came to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam He said, Ya Rasulullah People are saying this The Prophet sallallahu asked him as well and said What is this that I've heard from your people? So Sa'd ibn Ubadah and others said, Ya Rasulullah These are some of the young, inexperienced, unwise ones who have made such comments so the Prophet said to him, Sa'ad, what do you say? So Sa'ad ibn Ubadah said, Ya Rasulullah, after all, I am one of my people. Meaning, he felt some reservations too. So the Prophet said, gather the Ansar. And only the Ansar should be gathered, none of the Muhajirun, no one else. So the Ansar gathered in a large open tent. There the Prophet addressed them. It's a long hadith, I won't go into it in detail. But in one part of that famous sermon, which reduced all of them to tears. One of the things the Prophet ﷺ said to them, he said, O oh Ansar, would it not please you that others go away with camels and goats and you go back with Allah and His Rasul? Would it not please you that others go away with camels and goats and flocks and you go back with Allah and His Rasul? This is it. Allah, despite having the treasures of the heavens and the earth, He withholds them from those whom He loves. Rasulullah withheld anything that He had from those whom He loved. Those whom He loved, He gave them the treasure, not of gold, dinars, and sovereigns, and silver dirhams. He gave them the treasure of Allah and His Rasul. But only those can understand that who have iman in their hearts. 
that is not clouded by nifaq or weakness. And that's why Allah says, To Allah belong the treasures of the heavens and the earth. But the hypocrites do not understand. The meaning of the hypocrites do not understand is not the simple statement that, oh, they don't understand that Allah has treasures. Even a child knows that. The meaning of the hypocrites do not understand is that their vision is shallow. They are short-sighted. Just as everything about them is shallow, their understanding of reality and their understanding of the world, their understanding of wealth, is shallow. This is why they thought, everyone's just like us. We love money, they love money. We love wealth, they love wealth. We are slaves of our stomachs, they are slaves of their stomachs. So, deny them food and they'll go away. Withhold your wealth and they'll disappear. That was the level and that was the limit of their understanding. So this is another sign of hypocrisy. It's a trait, sorry, not a sign, it's a trait of hypocrisy. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enables us to understand. Inshallah, I'll say more about this in the, next, in the final two verses of Surah Al-Munafiqun, which are actually about wealth. And this is an interesting point. The whole surah of Surah Al-Munafiqun, most of it, is concerned with the hypocrites and hypocrisy. But the final verses are only to do with wealth and charity. So what's the connection? There is a deep connection between iman and charity and nifaq and the hoarding of wealth. And this is part of it. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enables us to understand. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala abdihi wa rasooli nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Subhanakallahumma bihamdik nashadu wa la ilaha illa ant. Nastaghfiruk wa natubu ilayk.